0: John Stott uh, an English theologian an author has written and said this about the resurrection he says christianity is in its very essence a resurrection religion the concept of the resurrection lies at its heart if you remove it christianity is destroyed so if you remove the resurrection christianity Is destroyed. And the age-old question is, why is the resurrection so important? Skeptics have been asking that question for over 2,000 years, and as we are about to see in our text this morning, the church in Corinth was apparently asking that question as well. What is so important about the resurrection? And the answer, just giving you the answer ahead of time, is that Christ's resurrection is the visible confirmation of God's grace to us. It's a visible confirmation that Christ has, in fact, defeated death. And as Paul writes to these Corinthians, he's trying to help them see that because the resurrection confirms God's grace to us, we must hold fast to it. Because the resurrection of Christ confirms God's grace to us, we must hold fast to it. The Corinthian church was not holding fast to the resurrection. They began to question it. And as we have continued to, passage by passage, go through the book of 1 Corinthians, we've seen this common theme of unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's not just unity, period. It's unity in a right understanding of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. And so Paul sees it very pertinent to help them understand that a right understanding of Christ is, in fact, that he has resurrected. Corinth was a young church various different problems, tons of problems that we've walked through as we've gone through this book, some of which were unbiblical divisions around their favorite Bible teacher. Some were various kinds of sexual sin. <laughs> Paul addresses one instance where they're suing one another out in public. There were wrong views of marriage and singleness. The Corinthian church was also elevating their own freedoms above the well-being of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we just finished the section on chapters 11 through 14 where the worship was just chaotic and unclear, and it brought a lot of confusion. Paul says your worship should be clear. He gives them instructions as to what that looks like in chapters 11 through 14. And now we enter chapter 15. So here's the great thing, is that the book of 1 Corinthians has a ton of debatable topics. And we've talked about that. And Christians fall on different spectrums of that, and they can still be Christians. They can still worship together. Chapters 11 through 14 particularly are one of those contentious areas. But now it's like a breath of fresh air, at least for me. Chapter 15 is about the resurrection and the good news. And we can all really agree on chapter 15. Chapter 15 specifically, we see that the issue that Paul is addressing is that these Corinthians were beginning to doubt the resurrection. Some were saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. as We see in verse 12. But today, we're looking at the first 11 verses, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. So if you would, turn in your Bibles there. And if you're using one of the Blue Provided Bibles, that's going to be on page 961. And if you don't own a Bible, just consider that Bible yours. You can take that. We pray that you would be encouraged by it and edified by it. But that's going to be on page 961. Look for the big number 15, and we're going to start reading right there. So starting in verse 1, Paul writes this to the Corinthians. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this gospel that we are reminded of this morning. Thank you for this study thus far in 1 Corinthians. It's been extremely edifying. And God, we pray that as we look at this passage, that it would build the unity that we have here at Citizens Church, that it would build our unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And so as you see in your bulletin, we've divided this text into three, three sections. We think that Paul breaks up his argument here into three sections. And so in the first two verses, we see a saving gospel. If you're taking notes, there's a blank there. That first blank is going to be saving, a saving gospel. And then in verses 3 through 8, we see a witnessed gospel. And then he concludes his argument in verses 9 through 11 by elaborating on a transformative gospel. A saving gospel, a witness gospel, and a transformative gospel. And so now, after concluding his discourse on on orderly worship, Paul shifts gears to remind the Corinthians of this saving gospel. And he makes a few key points here in the first two verses that we don't want to miss. Paul, in verse 1, is reminding them of the gospel. He says, I I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Now Alistair Gregor points something out that we should all be uh, ready to receive and also take, uh, follow in the same practice is that Paul is in the reminding business, not in the innovation business. He's reminding them of the gospel. He's not trying to innovate and come up with a new message for them to believe. And so us as a, as a body, we should be reminding one another, not trying to innovate what has once for all been delivered to the saints. And so Paul preached the gospel to them. They received it. They're standing on it, which is just a way of saying that they're trusting it, then they are being saved by it. Notice that the gospel just didn't miraculously arrive in Corinth. Paul came preaching it. He came preaching it on his second missionary journey. And if the gospel isn't preached, then people do not receive it. If the gospel is not preached, then it's not received. If it's not received, it's not trusted. And so Paul elaborates on this. If you're turning in your Bible, turn to Romans 10. It's right before 1 Corinthians. But in Romans 10, verse 14, look at verses 14 and 15, Paul elaborates on this concept of him coming, preaching, and then receiving and trusting. He says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So Paul points out when he's writing to the Romans that it's impossible for people to come to faith in Christ apart from them hearing the word, hearing this good news. doesn't mean they have to audibly hear it. It's not to say that if you don't have the ability to to audibly hear that you can't be saved. But it's saying you need to know the gospel. The gospel needs to be delivered to you. That's why it's so important, church, for us to look beyond ourselves. To take the gospel out to our neighbors. To to send missionaries. If there are missionaries or anyone in here who has a desire for missions, please, we would love to go through a process of trying to assess you, to try to build you up, and Lord willing someday send you out. As a missionary. Yes, there, there, I want to affirm, there's nothing more important for the church each week than our corporate gathering when we come together. But it doesn't stop there. We must continue to look beyond ourselves. We've been trusted with a gospel. So we need to proclaim that gospel to others so they too may receive it, trust it, and be saved by it. Don't let the gospel stop with you. If you're here, you will hear the gospel today. Maybe it's your first time. Maybe it's your 100th time. If you haven't received it, we pray that you would receive it. But don't let the gospel stop with you. It's meant to go forward. You're not meant to be a cul-de-sac Christian where it comes to you and that's where it ends. But the gospel is supposed to continue to go forward. Don't let it stop with you. Paul however, gives a warning to these Corinthians. Look at the end of verse 2. He says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. So he says, they're being saved if you hold fast. They'll be saved if they hold fast to the word that he preached to them. So a question that may pop up is, does that mean that they're saved by the work of holding fast? But we were saved by faith. Does that mean that a work is required for us to be Saved, that's a good question, and and the answer is straight up, is is no. They're not saved by that work. The New Testament's clear that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, rather than being saved by this work, the holding fast is an evidence that they have, in fact, been saved. It's proof that they've been saved. The fact that they hold fast is evidence that, okay, there has been a work in that person's heart, and so therefore they will continue to hold fast. Danielle and I, we love to to go apple picking each fall. And we go to the same place, because we know there's a ton of apple trees there. This this place is in Utica. They have a ton of apple trees. They've got all kinds of things going on. They're more than apple trees. But we know that there are a lot of apple trees there. And so in the fall, there'll be plenty of apples for us to pick. Now, those apple trees are still apple trees in the winter, when there are no apples on them. However, if they are, in fact, apple trees, then apples will show up come summer. The apples don't make them the apple tree, but they are evidence that they are, in fact, an apple tree. And the evidence or the proof of a Christian is that she, he or she is resting on Christ today. They're holding fast to that gospel. John writes about this very thing. You see this in, in 1 John chapter 2. He says in verse 19, he's talking about some people who proclaimed faith but didn't hold fast. And here's what he says about them. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So he's saying that because they stopped holding fast, that's evidence that they were, in fact, never Christians to begin with. So now what about the person who seems to have proclaimed faith? Seems to have evidenced a lot of fruit. But as of today, that person is not walking with the Lord. What about that person? Well, there's two possible answers. The first is that that person is a Christian, but currently they're wayward. And the Lord will bring them back. That's option number one, Philippians 1.6. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So if the Lord has begun a good work in somebody, He will bring it to completion. We can trust that promise. So if there is somebody who has proclaimed faith and is currently wayward, if the Lord did start a good work in them, he will bring it to completion. That person is just in a, a state of waywardness right now. Option number two is that that person was, in fact, never a Christian to begin with. Rather, he or she believed for a time, but it wasn't genuine. As Paul says at the end of verse two there, they believed in vain. Now, the thing is, we don't have the privilege to know which camp that person's in. We don't have the eyes of God. And so we must continue to proclaim the gospel. We must continue to pray for that person. We must continue to care for that person. We don't write anybody off. So if you know somebody like that, consider praying for them today. Consider sending them a text today. To let them know that you love them, that you're caring for them, you are praying for them, you want to see them come back. All who receive, trust, and hold fast to the gospel will be saved. That's what Paul is getting at here in these first couple verses. When people recognize their need for a savior, when we recognize that we are in fact sinful and that we have rebelled against God, we need to be reminded of who we are. Then we also need to be reminded of of what it means to embrace this gospel. We can say the word gospel bunch, but what does it mean to actually embrace this gospel? To entrust ourselves to Christ. To entrust ourselves to Christ as our master and as our savior. We are trusting that he has taken away all of our sin and paid for it in full. We trust that, believing that Jesus' payment for our sin is in fact sufficient, that there's nothing left to be paid, that is sufficient to satisfy God's requirement for justice. God is a perfectly just God. Every ounce of sin, every ounce of rebellion against him needs to be paid for. And we are trusting that Jesus has in fact paid for that in full. We're believing that his payment is sufficient to assuage God's wrath against sin. God hates sin. It's a rebellion against him. And it takes his creation and leads it into Eternal separation from him. It's also trusting that God's righteousness, that Jesus' righteousness, is in fact ours. So there's a twofold trusting here. Trusting that he has paid for our sin, that he has satisfied God's wrath, that he has met the requirements of justice. That our sin has been taken by him. But it's also a trusting that he has provided us now with the righteousness that we need. God is a holy God. We can't just waltz into his presence just because we don't have sin. We actually need a positive righteousness. Jesus provides both. So in summary, we confess our need for forgiveness. Then we confess Christ as the one who is sufficient to pay for our sin and to provide us with that righteousness. And so for all of us here, we are called to receive, trust, and hold fast to that good news. It is good news. Christian, proclaim this good news to those who are still in their sins. Those who are separated from God. Be reminded of this. Brothers and sisters. When you sin. When you fall. Into sin. Remember that Christ. Has removed. The guilty verdict. That was brought against you. You are free. This is great news. But if you're not a Christian today. Question. Question. What's keeping you from receiving this good news? Are you still holding Jesus at a distance? Maybe you're interested enough to be here. Thank you for being here. We pray that you would continue to come back and hear the gospel. We pray that you feel comfortable to ask questions along the way. If you have any questions about what it is to be a Christian or what the gospel is, please find me afterward. Find another Christian here. It'd be a conversation we would love to have with you. We would love to see you entrust yourself to this Savior. But not only was this gospel proclaimed by Paul, but it was also witnessed by many. That leads us into into verses 3 through 8. So you see Paul, he's delivering that which he received. Again, he is in the reminding business. He's not in the innovation business. He didn't invent this. He says the same thing to the Galatians when he's writing to them. Because they're departing from the gospel to embrace a new gospel. One that is, in fact, not even a gospel. But he says this to them in in chapter 1. He says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor has I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so in verses 3 and 4, Paul points out that this gospel that he received from Christ includes at least three things. The life and death of Christ, Christ's burial and then Christ's resurrection. Remember the Corinthians are starting to question Christ's resurrection. And so he alludes that this: if you nullify, if you get rid of the resurrection, then you nullify the whole gospel. And he points out two kinds of witnesses to help hold fast to the resurrection. We see the first one in verses 3 and 4 where he points out that the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures serve as a witness to this resurrection. But then we see also, that he points out eyewitnesses. So let's first look at the Old Testament scriptures. They bore witness to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The Messiah's death was predicted in Isaiah 53, in various places, but let's look at Isaiah 53. I'm looking at verses 10 through 11, and it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, and he goes on in verse 11, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Christ's work to bear our sin was foretold by the prophet Isaiah. The fact that he would be crushed by God. And then his burial and resurrection were foreshadowed in Psalm 16. I'm not going to go there for sake of time, but you can write these down. Psalm 16, 10, and Hosea 6, 2. So the scriptures anticipated Christ's resurrection, that's what Paul's getting at. He says, okay, witness number one, the Old Testament scriptures. You know this was foretold. Don't question the resurrection, Corinthians, because this was foretold. But hey, just in case you are still questioning the resurrection, let me share with you those who can be eyewitness accounts for you, those who saw the resurrected Christ. He says in verse five, starting there, that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the 12, the 12 disciples, were later apostles. Here to more than 500 brothers. And he, he's honest, appreciate Paul's honesty here, some of which have died. So you're not going to be able to confirm with all of them. But most of them, he says, are still alive. So if you do want to confirm with them, go find them. James, who's the brother of Jesus Christ and, and the leader of the Jerusalem church. And then all the apostles, so this is, this is more than the 12, when he says all the apostles. He's referring perhaps to the 72 that were sent out in Luke 10. The apostle means a sent one. And so we see in, in Luke 10, 72 of them were sent out. So when he says the 12, he's referring to the 12, uh, capital A apostles, referring to the 12 disciples. When he says, and all the apostles, referring to those others who were also sent out. And then also he says, myself. He appeared to Paul. And a, a requirement to be an apostle, capital A apostle, to hold the office of apostle was seeing the risen Lord Jesus. see this in Acts 1. And Paul is making the case to the Corinthians that there's no reason to doubt the resurrection. There have been plenty of people who have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. He was not only foretold in the Old Testament scriptures, but he was also eyewitnessed by 500 to 600 individuals. Resurrection of Jesus Christ is necessary. For the gospel, because if he didn't raise, then death still holds victory over him. He's still in the grave. If he didn't raise, our faith is in vain, which Paul will later say in this chapter. Paul says, look, if you, if you don't believe what I'm saying to you, if you don't believe the, the Old Testament scriptures that foreshadowed this and foretold it, then ask one of the hundreds of others who have been eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection. But here's the thing. Don't reject it without looking into it. He's telling the Christians, don't reject the resurrection without looking into it. I'm giving you plenty of resources to look into it. Scriptures foretold it. Hundreds witnessed it. And so if you're not a Christian here today, you haven't embraced the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I would encourage you, look into it. When I say look into it, I don't mean a YouTube video or a podcast. I mean, mean look at at a published work someone who's taking the argument seriously, someone who's advocating for it. If I could recommend just a few books, there are others out there. I would encourage you to check out The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Look into More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. Check out The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Gary Habermas. And there's another book, Seeking Allah, Finding Christ. You can, if you want to know any of these, if you need to find these, then just let me know. I'll I'll be happy to, to point you in the direction. I can help you find it on Amazon, and we can order it. We would love to get that book in your hand so that you can look into it. One theologian put it this way. He said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Christ's resurrection is our source of hope. Christian, hold on to that. Herman Boving points out, he says, in the resurrection, he himself and we with him were justified. His arising was the public declaration of our acquittal. His resurrection Is confirmation that God's grace has been granted. It's confirmation that all those who are in Christ will have victory over death. If he's still in the grave, we don't have that. It's just not there. And so if you are overwhelmed, brother or sister, by your past sin, I would encourage you, take some time today, take some time later this week, just to meditate on the resurrection, what that means if you've entrusted yourself to Christ, then that sin that you feel overwhelmed by has been paid in full. There's no more for you to pay. Rolls-Royce used to be known as as the car that never breaks down. And there's an old story. I am not sure if the story is true. So I'll just say that on the front end. But there's an old story of a, a wealthy Englishman who was driving through the Alps. In his Rolls Royce. He's feeling good about this Rolls Royce that he has and he's going on a trip. He's driving through and he hears a twang. So he's a little concerned and the car begins to sputter and he's no longer going. It, It broke down. And so he's a little frustrated. Rolls Royces, for those who don't know, are quite expensive vehicles. And so he calls Rolls Royce and they immediately get a mechanic on a plane and get over there and the mechanic is flown out, fixes it, and time goes on and this. Well, the Englishman realizes that a bill has not come in the mail. And he's, he has wealth. He's willing to pay his bill. He says, I can pay for what I owe. I, I want to pay this. And so he calls Rolls Royce. And he says, hey, look, I'm, I'm appreciative that you guys flew somebody out. I'd like to pay my bill. And they ask for his name, all that. And they, f- they find his information. And the woman over the phone says, we're very sorry, sir. I found your account. But it appears there's no balance for you to pay, as we have absolutely no record of your Rolls-Royce ever breaking down. Rolls-Royce, the car that never (laughs) breaks down. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, when you die, your life will be laid bare before God. And if you are in Christ, if you're resting on Him, then the verdict that will be pronounced over you, will be innocent. And the judge will say, I have absolutely no record of this person ever sinning. Therefore, there is no balance to pay. That's if you are in Christ. If you are not in Christ, you will have a balance to pay. And any sin against an eternal God will require an eternal payment. I would encourage you, call in the name of Christ. If you are in him, you will be free. You'll be free to enjoy the reward that perfect righteousness earns. Christ has earned that. And he freely gives it to all who call on him. And again, if you want to know more about that, please, please feel welcome to ask me or anyone else around you who's a Christian. We would be just thrilled to be able to talk to you about that. So not only does this gospel save, not only was it witnessed by the scriptures, as well as many others, but it's also a transformative gospel. So look in verses 9 through 11. Paul is sharing his background here. He says that he's the least of the apostles, that he's unworthy to be called an apostle, and he gives the reason why. It's because he persecuted the church. Now it's not just that he persecuted the church, like he he made business dealings difficult for him, or he said mean things about them behind their back. Look, in, you don't have to actually turn here, but Acts 7, we see just the, the measure of these persecutions. Acts 7, in verse 58, we see the stoning of Stephen. And we read that those who were stoning him, that they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is just Paul's Hebrew name. And then Luke continues in Acts 8. We read that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. Verse 3 continues. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So prior to his conversion... Paul's mission was to murder and imprison Christians. That's who he was. It wasn't just that he made life difficult for them. His mission was to murder and imprison Christians. He actually says in in his letter to Timothy, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom, this is Paul speaking, he says, I am the foremost. He says, I'm the greatest sinner. I'm the first of sinners, the foremost of sinners. But God intervened in Paul's life. We see in verse 10, look look there. Paul's acknowledging that God was gracious. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. So in response to God's grace, Paul worked hard. Walking in good works is a good thing to do. But notice that the grace came before the work. Paul's work didn't earn God's grace. Otherwise, it wouldn't be called grace. But Paul worked hard in response to God's grace. His work was a response to God's grace. In fact, God's grace is what moved Paul to work. You see at the end of verse 10, so it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And so, Christian, glorify God by responding to his grace, by walking in good works. That is honoring to God. We don't just say, I'm saved by, faith alone through, saved by grace alone through faith alone. Done. We say, yes, we're, we're, we're saved by that. But we want to walk in good works. Ephesians 2.10, that God prepared before, beforehand for us to walk in. And then continue to glorify God by acknowledging that it's him in you that's equipping you and enabling you to walk in those good works. So we respond to God's grace by walking in good works. That, that glorifies him. But then it further glorifies him when as we are walking in those good works, we are giving God credit. Saying, this isn't me. This is God's grace working in me. You can see the compounding glory that God gets in our lives when we do that. God is the hero of our story, not us. It's not that we are wise enough to recognize the gospel and embrace it. It's that God's grace worked in us to receive it. And then also to walk in good works afterward. And if you're not a Christian this morning, perhaps you've done awful things. Perhaps you're even worse than what your friends know of you. Perhaps nobody knows just how sinful you are, how wicked you are. But know this: God does know. In fact, He knows even better than you know. And yet, His grace remains available. It's continued to be extended to you. And we read in John 6:37 that whoever comes to me this is Jesus speaking. He says, "Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out." No matter what you've done. Paul was the foremost of sinners. He was murdering and imprisoning Christians. And even he experienced the grace of God in his life. It transformed him. The gospel not only saves, but it transforms people. It leads them to walk in good works. We're new creations in Christ Jesus, St. Corinthians tells us. Paul went from being a persecutor to an apostle. A murderer to a proclaimer. And look, we're prone to to totally forget this. It's just part of our nature. Paul had to remind the Corinthians. And at the beginning of the book of Corinthians, he says they are, in fact, a church, which means they are, in fact, believers. So he's not talking to non-believers. And even they forgot this. And so even we are prone to forget this. We're, We're just as human as the Corinthians were. And so, like them, we are constantly in need of a gospel reminder that forgiveness of sin is possible. It's not through us trying to be perfect, but it's through us trusting the one who is perfect. And the one who gives that perfection to anyone who calls on him. It's not through us being sinless. But it's through us entrusting ourselves to the one who is sinless. And the one who takes away the sin of anyone who asks him to. Notice Christ gives and takes away. He gives us his righteousness. And he doesn't just give us his righteousness. But and all the rewards that come with that but he also takes away our sin. He doesn't just take away our sin, but he also takes away all the punishment that comes with that. He gives us his righteousness and rewards, and he takes our sin and our punishment that we deserved. So Christian, hold fast to that. Hold fast to the gospel that was preached to you. Hold fast to the gospel that you received, the gospel in which you stand or in, and are trusting today. Hold fast to the gospel which saves you. Don't be one that Paul talks about here that believed in vain. That walked for a little while and then departed. Hold fast to Christ's resurrection as that's necessary for the gospel to be the gospel. If we're getting ready to sing, sing boldly. Behold our God. Seated on his throne, come let us adore him. He is no longer in the grave. He is risen. And he is now seated on on his throne. And we get to adore him. Because the resurrection of Christ. Confirms God's grace to us. We must hold fast to it. Let's not forget it. The Corinthians were forgetting the resurrection. They were beginning to question the resurrection. Paul says don't do that. The resurrection, fact, confirms God's grace to you. The resurrection is necessary for the gospel. So hold on to it. Because just as Christ was raised from the dead. So too will all. Who are united to him. If you are in Christ, if you are trusting Christ, death will not have the final say over you. But you will raise to eternal reward in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for the good news that is given to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the confirmation of your grace toward us through Christ raising from the dead. We pray that we'd be a people who remember that, that we do not soon forget it. We pray that we'd be a people who hold fast to it, that we would not be a people who believe in vain. And we pray that we'd be a people who respond to this gospel by working hard, by walking in good works, as Paul did as well. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.